Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silen. We're taking a little bit of a step away from movies this week. Not entirely. No need to panic. But I got an email from an avid listener of the pod named Jeremy Clark. I've asked his permission if I could read a portion of this email to you. And that's kind of the impetus for this episode. It's been a couple of weeks. My last episode was the 42 glimpses of Paul Newman's performance in The Verdict, which was the episode before that, doing the film Proper Justice with my repeat guest, Kier Graff, did a fantastic job. Thanks again to Kier for being such a wonderful podcast guest. I look forward to doing another literary adaptation with Kier. I think that's going to be his bailiwick, as they say. Anyway, frequently you will hear me on the pod fall into a post-episodic fugue where I'm so into a film and I'm so into a deep dive, such as I was with The Verdict, that it's hard to find my footing on subsequent episodes. And a combination of that, the dawn of the summer, and a musical interlude of my own, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a subsequent episode, um, had left me kind of casting about, you know, for a movie that felt right. Now, I, I do have a couple episodes forthcoming, which are going to be a return to the filmic form that you're used to on the podcast. But here, Jeremy wrote me a very nice email, uh, ostensibly all about the Moneyball episode, which I'm, I'm really also thrilled that people have responded to so strongly. It's so gratifying when you feel a certain way about really a, what feels like a small movie. And you sort of put it out there in the world, and then so many people respond and say, wow, I really love that movie as well. And listening to the podcast gave me, you know, impetus to rewatch it. And I got so much out of it. And thank you. So that, that's amazing to hear. As is the reaction to episodes that I always think are kind of like hit or miss. I'm always afraid of putting out something like my 42 glimpses of Paul Newman in The Verdict or 22 glimpses of Jeff Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, because these to me seem so indulgent and perhaps over meticulous, yet the Paul Newman glimpses episode is one of the most quickly downloaded episodes in the history of the podcast. It's currently at 2,700 and counting downloads in less than three weeks, which is some kind of a record here. As you know, we're a tiny little word of mouth podcast. We're not part of the podcast industrial complex. We literally grow one listener at a time. And that's thanks to all of you spreading the word, telling people, oh, you should check out this podcast. I don't take it lightly, and I try to make it worth your while. So anyway, Jeremy wrote a lot of nice things about Moneyball and experiencing the film himself, which he hadn't seen. He actually had some interesting notes about how the film was marketed uh, around the world. He said, I note that the French have two titles for the film. One is The Art of Winning, or The Strategist. The Strategist is pretty cool. Pretty cool title. Anyway, uh, anyway, this is the meat of the email that I wanted to, uh, to mention and that inspired what I'm going to do here today. Second thing, says Jeremy, your championing of the score, championing of the score, which I did in my Moneyball episode, made me ask, could you do an episode about your favorite film scores? 
It would be a fun holiday episode. It's strange how some film music from films you don't rate can sometimes stay with you for life. For example, Ghost World has the most amazing theme, very piano-led and minor-key whimsical, by a composer who has never composed before or since for another film. What fascinates me is I assert that this end theme from Ghost World could actually be the music for any film. It's weird. It actually gives generic a good name. I often play a game of playing it over the end credits of other films, and it always works. Uh, anyway, favorite film score episode special, please, and thanks for turning me on to the Brad Pitt film, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't, I can't, I didn't research the veracity of all of Jeremy's claims here about the Ghost World score, but here's a little of the theme that he's talking about. It is a beautiful, evocative score by David Kitte. I do see what he's talking about, how this would kind of go over, you know, anything, but Okay, wait, David Kitte, I'm looking him up here. He's actually done a lot of film scores. So, okay. Jeremy, some of your uh some of your <laughs> some of your information may be lacking. However, <clears throat> it doesn't take away from the fact that yes, it is evocative. And it got me thinking how there are film scores that I do listen to recreationally. There's, there are iconic and amazing film scores that I wouldn't really put on, and I'm not going to do an episode about those because, you know, are you going to put on Star Wars? Are you going to put on Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, yes, some of you, Pat, Bruce, I know you will put those scores on, but for me, I wanted to do an episode simply without overcomplicating it about a few genres of film scores that I do listen to and sometimes play along with musically on various instruments and also some simply iconic scores that uh, I do or don't listen to, but that I think in our lifetime of shared experience here on the podcast, if you're roughly my age, <clears throat> early 50s, you may be familiar with. And then I wanted to end with my favorite category of film scores that I do listen to, which is what I would call evocative scores. So we're going to jump right in and just, I'm just going to talk a little bit. I'm not going into detail here. I'm just going to play you a little of some of the things that uh, strike me. Now, the first category is just funky film scores, largely from the 70s. But as you see, there is a, a movement that occurred, thankfully, in some films of the 90s and the 2000s, but the most iconic 70s crime film is Get Carter, Michael Caine, uh, 1971, I want to say it is. We did an episode on the pod with my friend Paul Heaney. Check it out. Great. Get Carter's an amazing film. A lot of fun things to talk about. It's probably got more vibe than most other films I could think of. 
I mean, if you're after period specific, UK specific, North of England specific, clothing, language, attitude, this film has this in spades. As Kane himself would say in the film, it's got vibe in a thin gloss, as we talk about in the episode. Now, Get Carter, one of the most iconic film scores of all time, also one of the funkiest film scores of all time, composed by Roy Budd. And it starts with this, I don't know, what is this? A clavinet? I don't even know what that instrument is. Part of you, part of your responsibility as audience members is if you know things that I don't know in this episode, please feel free to post on the Instagram post about this episode. Fill in the blanks of my gapped knowledge here. But that simple theme. It's a bit of dialogue here. You hear Michael. Mr. Carter in the room. Yeah. Now, even just there, I was talking about vibe. You hear that telephone, that Bakelite telephone of England circa 1971. You can hear it in the way the phone rings, the material that the phone is made of. This is part of what I love about films of this particular period set in the UK. I love the light switches and the way they're clunky on the wall. I love the sound of the phones. I love the crockery. <laughs> I love the wallpaper and the kind of uh, dinginess of the sofas and the chairs in the working class apartment sets of films that are set in these locations. This is the vibe. And this is apparent in a lot of my favorite films of this era, including particularly the BBC adaptation of John Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is particularly great for light switches, telephones, crockery, clothing, etc., etc. But this Get Get Carter soundtrack, once it kicks in, What's incredible about this theme, in addition to just how toe-tappingly awesome it is, that bass line is forever, and the tabla drums, those kind of high-pitched, percussive Indian drums, are such a unique touch in a score of its time. I think we talked about this a bit in the episode where, you know, the changing demographic of England in the 70s and immigrant populations... Then you have, I think, Roy Budd himself playing this electric piano riff. 
It's just so good. I mean, there's more vibe in that score than in anything you could find from the time. It's so damn good. So that's a score I would actually and do actually listen to. Uh, I have an electronic drum set and you can connect it to your phone via Bluetooth and you can play along with anything that you have on your phone. Um, and yes, dear listener, I do, <laughs> I do jam along to the get Carter theme. Uh, these are the embarrassing admissions I'm going to make for you. Uh, on the podcast as a dedicated listener. Now, in another mind-blowing score of the era is David Shire's score for The Taking of Pelham 123, which I realize I really have to do this film on the podcast. This is another kind of rhythmic, um, funky, dissonant, city-feeling, urban, subway vibe track that's just hard to to categorize it's got this idea of sort of something's afoot I mean, when you put on the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and this, this kicks in, here's the best description I can give. I'm just going to quote directly from the Wikipedia. Quote, layers of explosive horn arrangements and serpentine keyboard riffs over a rhythm section that pits hard-grooving bass lines against constantly shifting but always insistent layers of percussion. Killer, killer, killer soundtrack. David Shire, married at the time to Talia Shire, who ties into a forthcoming episode that we'll be doing on the pod. Of course, she played Connie Corleone in Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and I presume Godfather 3, although I don't know that film well enough. But the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 is the way that Get Carter is to the vibe of North northern england in the early 70s as is the taking of pelham one two three to new york city of a similar era and that's an incredible score now scores of this era oh oops sorry scores of this era owe a lot to lalo schifrin and when i was a kid one of my earliest memories one of my earliest musical memories 
one of the earliest indications that I would become in life a barely passable recreational drummer started when I used to watch Mission Impossible um, on television with that incredible theme, which I didn't actually queue up here, so I'm just I'm just Googling this, um, which is, you know, one of Lalo Schifrin's sort of most notable and iconic It's a little more 60s feeling. It's not so funky, per se. But what I used to do as a kid is I would have sections of the newspaper and various pots and pans that I took from my mom's kitchen and I would take some wooden spoons this is probably when I was in third grade, fourth grade fifth grade, I would take wooden spoons and I would play along to this theme while it played on the television and that was my earliest sort of inkling that I was interested in maybe playing the drums now Lalo Schifrin's score for Dirty Harry is also one of the just crazy and iconic pieces of film music of its era. Also 1971. I guess film film music is changing at this time. This is the prologue that happens over the crazy swimming pool scene. I'm going to go to the main title here. Again, you have that tabla, which is probably pretty directly related to, you know, the rise in popularity of the Beatles using this type of instrumentation, Ravi Shankar's music. drum beats, man. Funky. the drums is such a a narrative instrument in these things this drummer is John John Guerin who is quoted here as one of the great LA studio drummers of the era and this is just what I love about this kind of music is it's kind of easy to refine your listening. And this is something I want to get into in a subsequent episode, which I think I'm going to do. 
I was talking about it at a concert I attended last night with a friend of mine. I was like, is this too esoteric to do as an episode? He was like, no, I think you should totally do it. So I've been thinking a lot about how I listen to music, how I listen to specific types of music. One of the things I like about these scores is they are expansive in the sense that the canvas in your mind as you close your eyes and listen to these bits of music is is broad enough where you can individuate and isolate the instrumentation. And if you're the type of listener I am, you follow different things. Maybe one time when I listened to that section section I just played, I'll listen to the bass line and the interaction between the drummer and the bass player. Maybe another time I'm listening to the string orchestration and how that complements what's going on with the rhythm section. And I'm, I'm intrigued by this, particularly as it relates to different types of music and maybe how you listen to music. And not that there's a right way or a wrong way. I mean, putting music on and just having it in the background is a perfectly acceptable way to listen to music. Listening to the lyrics is a perfectly acceptable way. There's no right or wrong way here, but I'm interested in, particularly with types of improvisational music, how I listen to that and separate the layers and pay attention to kind of what's going on. Anyway, Lalo Schifrin, a titan, a giant of the era and of the music. That is an incredible score. Now, the common theme here, since I was a kid growing up, I've loved crime TV shows, crime stories, crime movies. And another great thing about some of the Steven Soderbergh films of the late 90s and the early 2000s is these the soundtrack. Oh, and you know what? The other thing I wanted to say, I'm not doing soundtracks here that are jukebox soundtracks per se. Um, in other words, scores comprised like a Scorsese film of iconic classic rock tunes of the sort used in the Color of Money episode that we talked about the score. Like that's an incredible and iconic score. I know that Robbie Robertson recorded some new music for the film, but it's the use of Werewolves of London Clapton's, it's in the way that you use it. Those cues, those drops, I'm not talking about those types of scores. I'm not trying to be completist here in this episode. I'm just talking specifically about films that use composers to create what's really a character in the film, which is the way that the score encapsulates the vibe that we're going for. And in a crime film, especially in a comedic crime film like Out of Sight, which I believe Chris and I did on the podcast. It's one of my favorite films. It's got an amazing score. Um, let's try and... Some of these film soundtracks play a little of the film dialogue before they get to it. I can't remember which one of these, but this Out of Sight soundtrack is by David Holmes. This is another piece of music I do jam along to. And it borrows a lot from what we just talked about. Those other scores. David Holmes is also sort of an electronic musician, as I understand it. A DJ. 
And this is borrowing as much from that kind of culture and music as it is from the funk and rock vibes of the previous cuts that we played. just contains so much of the insouciant, jaunty, tongue-in-cheek, cool evinced by George Clooney and the way he wears a suit and how debonair and dashing he is. And uh, it's just, this has so many cues that are so funky. And David Holmes was such a great match for this period of Soderbergh getting into also like Ocean's Eleven. Well, we're just going straight up. Serious funk. I've really always just had an appreciation for this kind of drumming where you're just in the pocket. There's not a lot of, you know, ostentatious fills. It's really just being in the pocket with the bass player and holding it down. Um, And there's so many great tracks on this Ocean's Eleven soundtrack, also by David Holmes, that you can check out. And Ocean's Thirteen. This is one of my favorites. They have such fun attitude. It's like putting the Beatles and the Isley brothers in a blender. What this also is, is like the perfect musical embodiment of the brilliant Don Cheadle character in these films where uh, Basher, you always kind of feel like, is Basher putting on a fake accent intentionally? I've always felt that that must be true to this character. Not that it's an actor doing a poor accent, but that it's the character himself in the film that actually employs a British accent where he doesn't have one. And I think a lot of this score I could use to back up my half-baked theory. And much like Get Carter, you know, you're starting with this bass theme. I wonder if David Holmes is a bass player primarily because it seems like a lot of his tracks start with this bass riff just like the Get Carter, the lineage of cinematic crime film music is linked together and extended through where we end up here in Ocean's 12. 
And it continues yet forward because there's Ocean's 13. Soderbergh made a bunch of these. More David Holmes. Iconic, funky bass line. Deep in the pocket groove on the drums. Great hi-hat work. Hi-hat snare, bass drum, some fills. But not a lot of cymbal crashes. I mean, this is just great music for like putting in your headphones, going out into whatever city you happen to be living in at like four o'clock in the morning and just having a filmic interpretation of what's going on in your life represented by this soundtrack. It's so great. Okay, so those are some funky ones that I really appreciate and I sometimes drum along to. I also wanted to talk a little bit about some simply iconic film scores. Again, you're going to chime in here as you should. Oh my God, I can't believe you didn't talk about these 30 iconic scores. I get it. John Carpenter's score for The Thing, on and on. I mean, yes, Halloween. I know, but you're, you're not putting on Halloween, Frazier. Okay, I can hear you. You're not, you're not putting that on to go for a walk. You're not putting that on while you're, make dinner, while you're making dinner. You're not playing the score to Halloween. I don't care how big a John Carpenter fan you are. That's not what you're doing, Okay. Now, you might not put these on either, but these, I think, changed, they changed film score history in their own right just by dint of existing. And what I loved about kind of jumping into a few of these is all of these have such connections to the past. I think that's probably why I respond to them. And no, no greater connection to the past than Bernard Herrmann's iconic score for Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Because, of course, Bernard Herrmann connects to Alfred Hitchcock. And this golden era of Hollywood, you know, Hollywood of the 40s and the 50s. But the pairing of this with the most visceral 70s film is such a brilliant choice. And where Scorsese would later on get really into his brilliant use of Needle drop, as they call it in the business. Iconic songs like in Goodfellas, where you have this phenomenal soundtrack that's commenting on what's going on and has the energy of what's going on. But in this classic Hollywood film score, use 
such a great pairing. And you have this little romantic interlude, but then it's not going to last. <laughs> it's going to go back to... the filth of the streets and Travis Bickle's mind. What a brilliantly ominous piece of music that is, juxtaposed with this doomed romantic score. Here, right there, th- that that connection to the suspense film music of the early '50s, the early '60s, the Hitchcock era—it's it, just an incredible summation of all that came before it in the hands of a master, Bernard Herrmann. That's an iconic score. Now, this one is funny. I had to throw this in. I, I, I admittedly threw this in because I've been spending a lot of time with. One of my very closest friends who goes back to high school years with me, and we laugh so much, and we have so many pop cultural references and film references and memories, all connected to music. And this film is, I guess, become a bit of a cultural punchline of sorts because this is the film that if you grew up and you were a teenager in the early 80s, of a certain bent, you probably ingested some substances and watched and had your mind blown by Koyana Scotsi. Original music by Philip Glass. This is some awesome, awesome music. Now, this is a movie I'd like to revisit. I wonder if it holds up. It's sort of a a tone poem, if you will. It's about the way we lived then and, I guess, societal conventions breaking down. It had a mesmeric use of imagery and music. It's from the Hopi language, Koyana Skatsi. And the parts of the film were crazy life, life in turmoil, life disintegrating, life out of balance and a state of life that calls for another way of living. And you have these very Philip Glass repeated patterns. Now this has, I guess, become... 
I don't want to say it's derided, but I mean, it's kind of a punchline to have been a stoned teenager, having your mind blown and expanded by Koyaanisqatsi. But, you know, if you look at the comments on the YouTube uh, video of this, like they're all about exactly what I'm talking about. Um, one guy's like, wow, I was tripping on mushrooms with this music blasting through my house. I started speaking in tongues and what felt like evil entities trying to take control of me while the tongues I spoke out loud kept them outside or away from me. I saw the premiere of this film at the Telluride Film Festival. I'll never forget it. It carries a message that is more valid today than it was then. I will never, ever, ever forget the first time I heard this. It was the middle of the night. I was really sick with a 103 degree fever, a headache, body aches. I'd be taking all kinds of medicine. I was exhausted. I couldn't sleep. My fever was so I could feel the heat in my eyeballs. I pulled up YouTube and scrolled through videos. I came across Koyanaskati. I never heard anything quite like it. Between the fever, the medicine, the exhaustion, it being the middle of the night, and the strangeness and the uneasiness of the music, it was a profound experience. Profound is the only word I can think of to describe the feeling. I listened to the entire album and then sat in the darkness and silence thinking about what I had just heard. It was so unusual. It felt like my brain had been on a roller coaster. This is one of the, this is just one of the most iconic film soundtracks of the 80s. And I think the more you hear it, maybe the more you'll remember it. From then, I'm not sure. But it's... I had to put Kayana Scotsy in here because we spent a lot of time congregated as teenagers in darkened rooms, huddling around television sets, playing this on VHS, having our minds thoroughly, thoroughly blown. Now, another one I want to mention... <clears throat> is kind of a film that I think, well, I know, because I, I, this is one of those films. I've mentioned this on the pod before. There's a certain number of films that I have a very extremely minute, visceral reaction to remembering exactly where I was the first time I saw the film. And if I think about it, they're usually emotional experiences. It's being moved. It's It's a sense of, I don't know. What's the sense that films like Brazil have, that romantic, doomed, crushed by oppressive society, that heart of a wounded detective in Blade Runner? Um, there's, a, there's a certain sentimentality and emotionality that I connect to at times with certain films and certain pieces of film music. Now, this movie, I have no idea... It's so 90s now. I don't know if watching it would be cringy. I don't know if it would hold up. I remember at the time being as blown away by an experience in a, a movie theater as I had ever really had. And I'm speaking of American Beauty, of all movies, I know. But at the time, this was such a thing, this film. And Thomas Newman's score is really, uh, really influential. You hear this type of thing in a lot of places after he did this. 
I mean, Wes Bentley, Kevin Spacey, you know, does it hold up? I don't know. I haven't seen it since. I saw it once in the movie theater, and I was as blown away by anything as I have been by anything at the time. But I have no idea if I put it on now. Does it hold up? Maybe you've watched it more recently. You can let me know. But this music was so specific to the time. I guess I like music like this that has this hint of menace underneath the lyrical romanticism, the ennui, and the... head of a pin, edge of your seat, tentativeness evinced by the background strings and the plucked theme here, the piano theme. It's just, this was a huge piece of music at the time. Great, great, great film scoring. I wonder what it would be like to watch the movie again. Has anyone seen it recently? Can you... Tell me if it holds up or not. And another piece of music that really transformed the career, I would say, of of one of the artists involved is also a theme that became, it, it jumped over from the film and it became something that more recently everyone was aware of. And you're going to be able to identify this with a few short notes, if you haven't already. And just there, what is it? Nine notes? Twelve notes? You could pluck them out on a keyboard with three fingers. And it's really the answer to the question, how do you score a film about the creation of Facebook, which is both a uh, TikTok, as they say in films before TikTok meant, you know, videos of dancing cats. It's a TikTok of the story of the creation of Facebook, but it's also about so much more. And this music from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is so much more than that itself. Like, this is connected to who you think Trent Reznor is as a musician as much as it is a new type of film music that we haven't really heard before this.
And that's what's amazing about a lot of this music is it's connected to something. It came from all of the experiences, musical and otherwise, that came before this moment for these composers. And when you have the pairing like you had here, and these two would go on to, I don't know how many Oscars they've won since this. It's at least a few. And it created an entire new business for Trent Reznor, scoring films and expanding his palette of the ways he can express himself. And this theme was such an important part of the marketing of this film. It, it, conveys, it conveys somehow the tone of the film. It conveys the emotional thrust of this complicated story. And it's an incredible pairing. It blows my mind even just to, to contemplate it anew. And that leads me to my final section here, which is what I'm going to call evocative film scores. And many of these we've covered on the podcast. Um, I could end with this next one. I could start with this next one. So much of what would come after this score owes itself to this score and the work done by the now lamentedly late Vangelis in the the first Blade Runner film. This is just next level genius. I mean, just right there, okay? You have the hopefulness of the melody tentatively reaching out. And then you have that, mm, it's all going wrong, diminishing drop in tone right there. And then those otherworldly, cracking, oppressive rumblings. This is the vibe of Blade Runner put to music, in the music. You can't have the film without this music. The film would not be as iconically influential as it is and remains without this absolutely brilliant score by Vangelis. It's incredible. This is probably the film score I listen to the most because it has... The entire arc of the film is represented in the various cues that Vangelis did. I don't have time to go through all of them. It's worthy of its own episode. I'm just going to go through a couple of the most famous ones. God, it's so brilliant. You literally don't need words. I mean... This Memories of Green sequence, of course, is 
some of the most beautiful, the doomed robotic romanticism between Deckard and Rachel. This is just one of the most beautiful pieces of music he ever composed. into this romantic, lush resolution, but with this hint of what we know is coming. This is the romance between Deckard and Rachel. And it's this song, it's this cue by Vangelis. It's incredible. Oh my God. I can't even begin. And of course, the iconic Roy Batty tears in the rain scene. I've seen. Attack ships on fire on the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark in ten hours of day. All those moments will be lost in time. Vangelis's music here is just giving lie to the concept that you can't have lush, beautiful, evocative, electronic music. And it's just, I don't know if there's a more famous film score outside themes like, you know, the Star Wars theme or... Uh, these damn crows. Uh, speaking of crows, that's reminding me that I should shout out Canyon Crows, who you heard me talk about a lot. That last cue, a lot of Canyon Crows music uh, reminds me of this type of Blade Runner 
Vangelis-esque Vangelis sweeping synths. I've played it a bunch on the pod. I now I'm attacked by crows here in my summer podcasting studio. These... You know, it's such a delicate line in film scores between the music lading on the emotion, doing the work of the emotion, as opposed to encapsulating the emotion contained in the film, its performances, its technical craftsmanship. There's a lot of films where heavy-handed use of needle drop or other cues tells you how to feel. And it's doing that because... The script and the actors and the filmmaking aren't good enough to do that on their own. So you can put on this iconic piece of popular music and create a vibe instantaneously. It's a real skill to do that and not have that get in the way of what you're doing. Look at Scorsese and Goodfellas. It, it, those songs could have all been written for Goodfellas in the way that they're used in Goodfellas, right? But they're all existing songs that are so perfectly deployed. There's a difference there. And of course, coming off of Vangelis and this damn crow outside, you know, I haven't tackled this next film on the pod because... I had such a monumental emotional reaction to it. I think I've said many times I've seen it five or seven times in the theater. It's probably one of the films I've seen the most in the theater. And it's Blade Runner 2049 and the music composed by Benjamin Walfish and Hans Zimmer uses some of Vangelis's cues and calls back to them. But as a sonic landscape, I have never full stop had the experience ever in a theater that I had when I experienced Blade Runner 2049 for the first time. The music was so all-encompassing, beautiful, mythic, operatic, stunning, original, yet contained the DNA of Vangelis's brilliant, iconic score for the original film. It's a masterpiece of film scoring in that sense for me because it, it does something so contemporary and, and, and it has sounds you've never heard before. And it is of a piece with the film in the way that Vangelis's score for the original is.
I think you can hear a little call back there to the Koyaanisqatsi, the, the use of those voices and strings. And when we get into some of these later cues, I don't know if that's Tuvan throat singing, probably, but I don't know this score. It's almost, it doesn't, it's not working for me now because it's so married to the film <laughs> that it's, it's, I don't know. I can listen to this and I can know exactly the frames of film that go with it, but it's the full experience. It's sitting in a real movie theater and one capable of reproducing this music in bone-rattling volume and density that I will never forget. I will never forget being in a theater and experiencing this music. That's how crazily iconic and appropriate it is. Um... This one is weird because it doesn't really translate to me talking about it here, which is kind of funny. I'm realizing that as I'm as I'm playing these cues. It doesn't quite have the same immediacy that even playing the first Blade Runner score does. But I promise you that if you ever get a chance to see the film in a theater properly speakered, your mind will be blown. Now, I'm cheating a little because I said I wasn't going to do needle drop score. Uh... And there is original music composed for this film. Composed by Christopher Gordon, Iva Davies, Richard Tognetti, directed by Peter Weir. And of course, I've geeked out to this film on the pod. I did an episode about it. Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. It has some of this music, which is originally composed for the film, but I'm cheating because the most incredibly emotional parts of the film use what has long been my very favorite piece of classical music, one of my very favorite pieces of music, period. And this is Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis by the British composer Vaughn Williams. And I've talked about this at length, I think, in the Master and Commander episode. 
where the way this is recorded is using two different symphonies of different sizes separated from each other so that you have a distance in the sound of a grouping of strings versus some of the other instrumentation. But the way this stuff is used in Master and Commander evokes the emotions of what's going on, the loss in scenes where this is so brilliantly used. Trust me, get yourself a great copy of Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, played by the London Symphony Orchestra, doing the work of Ray Vaughan Williams, and listen to it through your headphones. Your mind will be blown. It's beautiful, incredibly beautiful music. And it's interesting, and it's, again, about that kind of active listening, the ability to hear what's going on, a swell of emotion... It goes on and on and on. It's it's some of the most evocative and emotional and beautiful music ever composed. Again, it's not film score per se. This is classical music composed, I don't know, late 19th century, early 20th century. And connected to everything we were talking about in this iconic, uh, evocative section, of course you have to play You'll know it right there. (laughs) This is just another piece of utterly brilliant film composing by Jerry Goldsmith. Of course, the soundtrack to Chinatown.
talk a lot more about this music and its its origin backstory. It's a replace famously a last minute replacement score to the film, and the trumpet solo by Ewan Razy is incredible. It's iconic. And it again has this blend of romance and also things are not quite right. It's the same mystery that the film itself brings to light. And the brilliant music. All through this film. A triumph. Jerry Goldsmith can't beat that. That's some quality, quality film score. That's one you can put on. Now, I find a connective tissue between that and another film I've done on the pod. This is Elliot Goldenthal's brilliant score for Michael Mann's Heat. Another one of my favorite episodes I've done on the pod. And again, right, it's emotion. This is what I respond to. You might respond to something different. But I respond to emotion. And a vast sense of the complexity of life. And I think the greatest film scores contain that in just these, just a minute of music that we haven't, we haven't even listened to a minute of this. And how much is contained in the 47 seconds we've just heard? How much of the film is represented by this sense of the humanity and the inhumanity of the world that we live in? By the way, we, we really need a re-release of Heat in a cinema where the soundtrack can be prioritized and given the attention it deserves because it's absolutely stunning and absolutely beautiful. Now, there is a piece of needle drop in there, breaking my own rule once again. Of course, the emotional crescendo of the film is the chase and shootout scene between De Niro and Pacino through the airport at LAX. And Neil McCauley and Vincent and their lethal dance is actually not a piece of Elliot Goldenthal music. I talk about this in the episode, but I didn't know that it wasn't until I had researched the original episode on Heat because it fits so well with what Elliot Goldenthal is doing that I just presumed it was more music. But of course, it's Moby. It's one of Moby's most famous tracks which is God moving over the face of the waters. And it's obviously connected to Philip Glass because we have a repetitive piano theme, which is very Glassian. And again, you have this, an electronic musician who through technology is creating an emotional soundscape that traditional instrumentation may not 
necessarily allow. piece of music so well used in the film just astoundingly beautiful and so perfect for the tragic kind of conclusion of these two characters who we have come to love and appreciate over the course of the film now i did moneyball recently so i won't really go into that per se except to say that It's of a piece with everything I've talked about here, including, in a different way, something that it does that none of the other pieces of music I've played uh, have done, which is that that scene where the Oaklandais are going on the streak, right, is it uses broadcast footage and voiceover in a way that when you play this without this part cut in the music is still effective but it really comes alive when it's all of a piece something strange is now happening at Oakland you cannot argue the point right now we 12 in a row and making a joke out of the American League they were in Detroit today and just he throws to first and that's the sound of 14 straight victories 14 straight the longest run in the bigs this year it is slingshot Rip the A's Stuart into first Scott. in the AL West it's a nice this team was written off how do you explain otherwise how do you explain otherwise some of the victories that they've come up with As the Oakland A's are going to win 16 consecutive games this is the longest win streak in baseball folks in 25 years the A's have won 16 in a row have a winning streak of anything like this duration yet. So again, you can check out the Moneyball episode for much more about the way this brilliant piece of music is used in the film. And that brings me to what is still to this day going to be my very favorite piece of composed music for a film, except I'm going to break my rules again because it's not really a film. It's a TV series. However, it's a film. (laughs) And I've also done an episode about this television series. For my money, it is the greatest television series ever made. It contains multitudes It is worthy of multiple rewatches. Just made plans to watch the entire five-season run again with a friend of mine starting later this summer. And inextricably linked with the genius of the filmmaking, the writing, the acting, the performing, is this theme in Gomorrah. 
which is a crime mafia film series um, which always concludes each episode with this incredible piece of music by the Italian rock band Mocadelic. reminds me a lot of the music of the Icelandic band Sigur Ross, which contains a similar cinematic sense of the beauty, the destruction, the pain, the pathos, the ennui of everyday life. And what's so particularly brilliant about the way this track is used in the series Gamora is that each episode <laughs> over five seasons ends with this same music cue. And not only does it not get repetitive, it somehow always perfectly matches what's going on on the screen. And the filmmakers took great care to always cut to black over the very last bit of the song as it concludes. And it's, it's a choice made from the very beginning that actually continues to work over, I don't know how many years it took them to produce, seven, eight years. But this music is somehow the spiritual center of the series Gamora, uh, which is more than a mafia show by a lot. It's a show about humanity about life and love and loss and hope and emptiness and all the things and as the episodes conclude it would always end right there and they would cut to black and that's my watch telling me to take a breath <laughs> Speaking of modern life, crows and my Apple Watch telling me it's time to wrap it up. Well, this was a bit of an amorphous episode that wandered through some of the things that I enjoy listening to in the world of film scores. And I don't know why. It feels like this is an episode I really hope to hear from you about. If you're a musician much smarter than I, you can maybe explain to me what is it I'm reacting to in these cues? Is it just... Is there, a, is there a mathematical thing that you're aware is going on? If so, be gentle. Don't rob me of my romantic attachment to these tracks and the brilliance and the genius that I ascribe to them. But I am curious to know, what is it that I'm responding to musically? I sometimes pester uh, my friend and avid listener, Josh, who's a very, very smart musician, can you explain to me what's happening in this chord progression? Why does it evoke the things that it does? That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. But 
Again, this is not meant to be a definitive survey. This is just meant to take a walk through some of the scores that I really appreciate. And I will be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Thank you as ever for supporting and listening.